I um, I went along to the conference uh, in and around the conference as a, um, a supporter of Labour Party Marxists. And uh, indeed, I wrote in last week's weekly worker about the conference uh, that was sort of written with first impressions. And these are some sort of slightly more considered thoughts, particularly as the week has gone on. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that it's uh, it's been a rather good week for Sir Keir Starmer. Um, as far as he's concerned, quite a good party conference, uh, good position in the polls. Um, the the, um, the latest polls give him a, a lead over the uh, over the Tories, which if it followed through, the Tories would be sort of smashed to bits. Would have about sixty MPs, and Labour would be would have swept the board. Uh, to a certain extent, that of course is a, a product of the the economic um, crisis, the disarray in the in the trust government, the reaction of uh, the markets to the mini budget, and so on. But it's also, I think, uh, a sign that uh, that that the the Starmer strategy, uh, the very you know clearly defined Starmer strategy, may well be paying off for him. Um, He's certainly getting a lot of uh, good press at the moment. Uh, papers which were previously rather hostile or were reporting rumours of discontent in his shadow cabinet uh, are now saying that uh, all he has to do is to uh, be slightly polish up the act. But he's now a very much a prime minister in waiting. So I want to I want to think about that. I want to think about his uh, his strategy, what he's trying to do. But also, I want to look at the reaction of the left uh, and of the wider left. Uh, like a lot of comrades who were present in uh, Liverpool, I attended the fringe meetings, uh, took part in discussions with the left, particularly at a series of events called Beyond the Fringe, the Future of the Left, where there were a number of discussions on the whole idea of was Labour dead? What was the future of the left? But also drawing on some wider questions uh, of, of importance. So I want to try and bring some of that experience uh, to this, this talk. Likewise, I, I'm sure that there are a number of comrades here who were also present and maybe they can come in to give their experiences as well. Um, I have to say that uh, we could sort of summarize the conference in some ways as a sort of tale of two anthems. Um, there was a very, uh, the, the conference opened on Sunday with uh, the first recorded, uh, not that it was uh, uh, turned into some sort of recording, but the first uh, evidence of the singing of God Save the King at a Labour Party conference. And uh, that was one anthem. The second anthem was on the, uh, was on the, uh, during the debate on Ukraine, NATO and foreign policy. And that of course was the Ukrainian anthem. And I think if we want to gauge where, where Labour is under Starmer, then those two anthems sort of bookend it, as it were. The, the singing of God Save the King was, was really uh, hyped before the conference. And um, it was supposed to be a sign that, uh, that this was a new Labour Party. It was a patriotic Labour Party, that it was one that uh, was at ease with the constitutional order, but above all, it was sending out a very explicit signal 
that this was not Corbyn's Labour Party, that this was a, a, a you know, a, a, a more acceptable Labour Party, that the dangerous uh, extremism of the, um, uh, of the Corbyn years was now past. It was also, I think, an attempt by Starmer to amplify a theme that's been an important part of his triangulation strategy, which is to locate himself very much in the center ground. And that, that type of triangulation argument isn't, I think, just a, a sort of stylistic tick. It isn't just a case of using particular words. It's actually locating Labour, uh, in a sense, well away from any connections with the left and indeed with any, any sort of class politics in that sense. So the language of class uh, and, and indeed any uh, ideas on the left are now completely marginalized in, in the way that Starmer presents things. Starmer's uh, safe pair of hands routine uh, comes out very clearly in his speech on Tuesday. And again, I'm sure comrades will have seen this. And I think, I think looking at it on television is quite useful because uh, the, the whole event, indeed the whole conference is designed to be a, a televisual experience. Uh, if not an, an extravaganza, it is done for effect and done for appearance. So the setting, uh, the use of the union flags, uh, the whole uh, appearance of the conference, the camera work, all are designed to give a particular impression. And in, in the speech, we, we had, in a sense, the, the epitome of the stage management of the, um, of the conference. So that, for example, at certain points, uh, Starmer gets uh, standing ovations, particularly in his reference to anti-Semitism, where he says he's purged the party or he's working to purge the party of anti-Semitism, and that the you know the dangerous extremism uh, you know will, will will have gone, and along with Rachel Reeves in her speech, emphasizes sound money, responsibility, discipline. Uh, you know, working with the nation, working with hardworking families, working with entrepreneurs. So this is in tone and approach is clearly uh, a very, um, a very different, uh, um, you know, type of uh, type of Labour Party is arguing. Furthermore, he uh, he uses the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, as a way of contrasting his decent patriotism with the uncertain loyalties of those on the left. And in holding up uh, the late queen as um, a, a sort of symbol of duty and of service, of public responsibility, he's you know, trying to sort of locate himself in that sort of world that um, was conjured up by the BBC and the various commentators in the days of national mourning, that this is, that the, the queen wasn't just the head of state, that she embodied decent virtues, and indeed Labour is now embodying those, uh, those same virtues. Um, he used a phrase, again drawn from Tony Blair in that speech, that Labour was now the political wing of the British people. And that idea that, that this is no longer just a sort of a party of the fringes, is no longer just the party of the left, but it's now in the mainstream of national life uh, in that way. 
these things were were to be repeated throughout the the, the, the effectively the three days of the conference. Um, Rachel Reeves in her the, the shadow chancellor also sort of took up that um, you know took up that whole argument that whole line that this is um, this is where we stand ready to work with business um, not in hock to the trade unions and indeed um, that we're you know a party now ready for government and of course this type of message was helped by what was going on outside of the conference. If the press reports are to, believe, be, to be believed, uh, over the weekend, the various shadow ministers and so on, um, instead of working up their very carefully scripted speeches, were actually just waiting on to see what would happen uh, in terms of reaction to the, um, the, the fiscal event uh, that uh, Kwasi Kwarteng had, um, had got together and in a way hoping or thinking of how they could uh, how they could orientate towards that and of course when 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 the when the when Monday came Tuesday came the reaction of the markets uh, you know just heightened that so in a sense all that they really had to do was to come out with enough platitudes about responsibility and about how they would balance the budgets and that Labour was now the party of sound money, money for that to work. Things which would perhaps, uh, if they'd been said a week earlier or a month earlier, would not have been believed, were now quite capable of, of being believed simply because of what was happening outside. Casting the, um, casting the Tories as extremists, as people who no longer spoke for the nation, uh, would have been difficult before I think that budget, but now he had plenty of raw material to go on. He just simply had to uh, mouth the platitudes and it would all fall into place. So both the opinion polls and the, um, the, the sense of a, a sort of collapse of the government of economic and political crisis gave, uh, gave Keir Starmer a bit of a, an easy wind he had the wind behind him and really had to do very little. Um, he also had, I think, uh, uh, another element, which was that um, the left had, uh, I think, had underestimated the impact of that crisis, certainly hadn't, hadn't really expected it. Indeed, I don't know that many people had. And so um, were in the immediate, uh, arena of the conference were in a sense always running to catch up but also I think at a, perhaps a more fundamental level they they went into that conference probably at their most disoriented most demoralized that they'd been for you know some time I'd uh, I'd been to I think the last four Labour Party conferences uh, although I had been to some in the 70s as well but what struck me about this was that the sort of atmosphere around it was was radically different. So, for example, um, in and around the conference uh, arena, um, it's just a, a physical thing that you can see. The uh, the delegates were, um, were were suited and booted. They were clearly uh, apparatchiks, bureaucrats, trade union bureaucrats. 
they were all aspiring uh, parliamentarians and the, the left delegates or indeed any delegates at all seemed to be very much in the minority. Um, the attendance at the conference was clearly down on those of recent years. And what was clearly dominant there were the, were the right, the careerists, the, aspi the aspiring MPs, and also many people who um, were you know, prepared to give Starmer the benefit of the doubt. There were, there were people who um, I talked to who had previously been on the left or had been certainly sympathetic to the Corbyn project, as they called it, but now said, well, we've got to, um, we've got to rally behind Starmer to get the Tories out. The Tories are a complete disaster and we can't afford internal uh, you know, dissent. The main focus is on the Labour government. So uh, even, even, uh, you know, e even in terms of the, the, the people attending the conference, I think there was a sort of different, different mood amongst them. And indeed, the sort of people that they were, their backgrounds and so on, I think, you know, again, long-time conference goers will be able to recognise that uh, phenomenon. The other thing as well, in terms of the left, in and around the conference arena, was that it was much more marginal. Um, lobbies, demonstrations were all fairly poorly attended. Uh, a demonstration, for example, protesting uh, by uh, a black socialist group uh, about the um, Ford report and its uh, uh, issue of anti-black racism or failure to deal with that. Um, attracted about 30 or 40 people. And um, it, again, was in marked contrast, I think, to previous years. I indeed, the whole sort of extra, uh, and this is in and around the conference fringe itself, uh, in and around the conference arena itself, um, the, the sort of activity, the leaflets, the sort of interventions, again, were at a much lower level. But I'll, I'll come back to, to that in a second. In the conference hall itself, what I think was noticeable about the presence of the left was that it was um, it was marginalised, it was kept to one side, and not only because of um, uh, you know any manipulations by the chair, but but also because in the run up to the um, run up to the conference, there'd been any number of exclusions. Um, again, story surfaced throughout the week. Of, um, of people who turned up in Liverpool expecting to attend the conference, only to be told that their, um, their credentials had been withdrawn and that they, they were being suspended. Um, we, of course, had the, the example of Naomi Wimborne Adrissi in, um, in that category, who as a member of the NEC was, um, was suspended. And um, there were numerous other examples of that. Uh, the, 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 perhaps the most blatant of them was somebody who spoke in the Ukraine debate on, on, on NATO and was suspended uh, after having made the speech. So this, 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 it was clear that even before the conference, there'd been suspensions and expulsions and indeed purges of the left. Uh, any number of fringe meetings, there were reports of uh, comrades coming along and say, well, my constituency's delegation has been entirely ruled out. So there were these organizational uh, restrictions on the left, 
But I think there was also a very subdued feeling and a, a real lack of morale. And what I uh, what I thought as I looked at the the singing of the of God Save the King was where was the protest? Where were the people singing something else? Where were the people standing up and protesting about the, the, the loyalism to the constitutional order? Think back even to the last time that uh, Starmer spoke. Um, again, the left had, had suffered numerous defeats, but there were still enough left-wingers in the hall to hold up red cards. There were still heckles. He faced none of that with the singing of the anthem. He faced no heckles at all when he was speaking. And so there wasn't, wasn't only administrative uh, arrangements to curb the left, but I think there was, in a sense, a demoralization. Um, it's argued, and I think there's some evidence if we, if we look at the pictures and look at the, the other coverage of the conference, that many people on the left stayed away. Many union delegations stayed away. And um, it was clear that um, you know, there wasn't as much enthusiasm for belting out the words of God Save the King as uh, Starmer would have liked. But it was also clear that there was a degree of demoralization. We can't do anything. Uh, you know, we have to let it pass. There might also have been, and again, you know, comrades can debate this, the, the argument that uh, it was not the issue to, to raise and that simply protesting about God save the king would be seen to be sort of petty and irrelevant and that there were bigger issues there. Uh, again, this was to come up in some of the debates uh, and some of the discussions on the fringe about the importance of those particular questions. But for me, the uh, the singing of both that anthem and also the the backing for what was essentially a warmongering policy in the Ukraine and a falling in behind the whole pro-NATO strategy um, with with barely a peep of opposition, I think tells us a lot both about the nature of the Labour Party and the nature of the uh, of the left. Starmer's um, Starmer's politics, his economic position, I think, are fairly clear. And it, it's, it seems to me that Starmer is now, uh, you know, really going hell for leather, but doing that in a quiet, understated way to become prime minister. Those who, who said that he didn't want to be prime minister, that he was risking um, electoral victory by a focus on the left, I think misunderstood his whole rationale. Starmer wants to prove himself to the ruling class. It, you know, he's, he's in a long line of Labour leaders who do that, so nothing new there. Likewise, he wants to prove himself that he's not only a safe pair of hands, a capable leader, but also that he can deliver. And in particular, that he can uh, deliver the organised working class of the trade unions, and that he can turn Labour into a sensible party of government, a reliable second 11. And I think, again, he's, he's managed to do that. This is where I think events outside the conference hall were, were, were going to come back in and shape how, how that appeared and how that went. Because it's very clear to me that 
that Starmer is now being seen as not just uh, a, an alternative, but actually is seen as really the safer option for the ruling class in comparison with uh, what's going on in the Tory party. That safer option isn't just in terms of economic management, but also I would suggest in terms of its relationship with the organized working class movement, the trade unions, and also I think in his ability to deliver. Um, so in putting forward that strategy, Starmer isn't, I think, just, um, isn't just playing an electoral game. He's not just appealing to this mythical center ground of Middle England, Worcester woman, Mondeo man, all the other cephalogical constructions, but he's also appealing to the ruling class as well. And I think that the type of um, coverage that he's getting in the um, less hysterical uh, bourgeois papers indicates that he's succeeding there. So that those were his two audiences. And I think the opinion polls uh, you know, have helped him uh, show that, uh, that that strategy at the moment is successful. But I want to, um, I want to perhaps turn a little more to the left and look at that left and look at how they responded in this conference. But also to sort of draw out some perhaps more general points about both about the nature of the Starmer leadership and the uh, the nature of the Labour Party, because one of the one of the features I think of of all of the fringe meetings was uh, a real failure by most of the left to really come to terms with what had happened to them. Um, we had a a series of rallies, uh, some of them organised. Um, uh, uh, you know, by those new groupings, enough is enough. Some uh, around the world transformed, and indeed around sort of existing publications like Tribune or the Socialist Campaign Group. But there were a number of common features in those rallies and in those events. The first thing was the presence of um, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, John McDonnell. And also a number of the trade union leaders who've become quite prominent over the last few months, Mick Lynch, Eddie Dempsey, um, uh, you know, the various uh, people involved in the strikes, Dave Order, the Communications Workers Union, and so on. And those, um, those meetings uh, often uh, attracted quite large attendances. Um, one meeting in St. George's Hall, which is a big neoclassical hall in the middle of the city, uh, probably got around about a thousand people and quite, um, you know, quite a, a large attendance. And even some of the smaller rallies were regularly getting between three and seven hundred people. And, and then that's the emphasis on the rallies. Now, comrades uh, who went to them, I went to some, uh, but I, I got reports from other comrades and we had plenty of discussions about them, um, reported a number of sort of themes, and one of which was uh, simply a type of sort of revivalism, um, you know, the, res the response or the reaction given to Jeremy Corbyn was, um, you know, was overwhelmingly positive, 
and um, a sort of sense that you know Corbynism was a was 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 still a project that was around. But what was lacking in any of those rallies was, I think, any really appreciation of of what had gone wrong, what had happened, why Corbynism had been a failure, how it had been defeated, and indeed, you know, the nature and the causes of its debate defeat. So I, I suppose that I suppose the best way of describing that was at a meeting on the um, uh, the Ford report. Um, all sorts of uh, illusions uh, came to the fore in that discussion, and these particularly turned on the, the issue of factionalism and the nature of factionalism. If you remember, comrades, the um, the Ford report found that there was a great deal of factionalism in the Labour Party, and that this factionalism, particularly from the right, had um, undermined the election efforts. And what the what the report seemed to suggest was a plague on all of your houses, and that um, you know it was all just a rather unfortunate set of circumstances. And you know, let's try hard to be nice to each other. And Jeremy Corbyn and many other people went along with that sort of line. So far from seeing the attacks on Corbyn for what they were, where they emanated from, and in particular to look at the nature of the Labour Party's bureaucracy, um, they just took the, the, the facts of the Ford report at face value. Some of the speakers even agreed that uh, there'd been factionalism on the left and said that what we need was an in, needed was an independent bureaucracy. But the real civil war that should have been fought in the party, particularly with the left really taking on the right and expelling the pro-capitalist elements from the party, that wasn't addressed at all. So the very same sort of mistakes that had actually uh, resulted in, uh, in the defeat of, of Corbyn as a leader and of his immediate support base, were still being repeated. Um, so the, the, the concessions to the right, the ideas of compromise, all were very, um, were all very clearly evident in these meetings. And I think this went back to a, another sort of original sin that uh, again permeated the left at the conference. And this, this sin, if you want to think of it in that sense, was really uh, a failure to understand the nature of the Labour Party because the left, in a sense, the Labour left, you know, really is a fundamental part of that problem. And this was that these comrades, saw Labour, see Labour as it's currently constituted as an instrument for obtaining socialism. So for example, in, in numerous fringe meetings, arguments were put forward that if Starmer adopted a left-wing programme, that this would make him very popular. He would then sweep to, um, sweep to power on this radical programme. And then we can begin the, the task of constructing socialism in Britain. Of course, we as Marxists recognize the nature of the capitalist state. We recognize that it's not a neutral instrument that can be utilized um, uh, you know, by the working class and that the, that the state will be used against any sort of government, even of a fairly moderate type if the interests of capital determine that. 
But of course, this is a fundal, fundamental element of the laborism of the labor left, which is to see, <coughs> pardon me, which is to see not only the state as a, a particularly sort of neutral instrument that can be utilized, but that socialism can be achieved through a succession of labor governments. So the focus on unity, the focus on maintaining the Labour Party as it's currently constituted was absolutely crucial for the, these groups of uh, uh, what we might think of as the official left. So party unity, compromise with the right, self-censorship is in a sense at the core of their political argument. So it isn't only, I think, the repression and the expulsions and the uh, suspensions, the, uh, the administrative measures that Starmer and the right have, have introduced. It's also in a sense, uh, an inner weakness, a lack of real perspective about the nature of the Labour Party and what and how and what and what, why we should be uh, even involved with it in that way. So that, that sort of uh, repetition of previous mistakes was very much on show. Another uh, approach, which in a sense, you know, is a product of this perspective, was a, a real failure uh, by the, this official left and large parts of the, of the left outside of the conference, was to understand the nature of the defeat and really the position that we were in. So although uh, a number of measures that were being favoured by the left were passed, the 15 pounds uh, uh, minimum wage, uh, some aspects of the Green, Green New Deal, and a rather ambiguous motion on um, uh, public ownership of the, of the railways. These were being sort of heralded as um, great triumphs. And indeed the argument was uh, put forward by the comrades at the CLPD, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, that in fact the, the policy agenda was now determined by the left and that Starmer was in a sense taking on board this left-wing agenda, which uh, does rather beg the question that if it's um, such a radical left-wing agenda, then what is Starmer doing taking on board when he's not a notable Bolshevik or uh, you know, a, a, a militant class fighter? No, I think, I think the point is that not only are there, that their politics sufficiently mild and sufficiently uh, pro-capitalist to be taken on board by someone like Starmer, but also that it's quite, um, it's quite possible for Starmer to use that sort of language because it, again, you know, meets a particular need and to exaggerate the idea of the pressures that uh, the left are able to exert on him, uh, I think is, um, you know, really overstating their position. It was very clear looking at a number of the votes that the left still enjoys uh, a certain position in the constituencies. Um, it still probably has the support of around about 40% or so of the constituencies. But contrast that with the situation a few years ago when it was um, likely to be 80 or 90%. So we can see a real slipping back. And I think the I think we have to be realistic about that. We have to understand that, that, that the left has been very clearly defeated and that the pro-capitalist wing of the party now is really in control. 
taking solace from some rather anemic motions, which will be ignored by Starmer anyway, taking solace from that, you know, it might well raise morale, but in fact, it's setting people up for more disappointments. I think we have to be very clear where we stand now in relation to, uh, to that leadership and what a decisive defeat we've, we're facing. Um, the other current I think that we have to look at is uh, alongside those comrades who are you know, attempting to suggest that, that, that the left still can exert pressure over Starmer, are those comrades who've arrived at a rather different and indeed an opposite position, and that is that Labour is now dead and that some new initiatives, some something new must emerge. Um, in a number of the fringe meetings uh, that did uh, come up, notably in the in the fringe meetings organised on the Wednesday by Beyond the Fringe, the Future of the Left, and this was a series. This was three meetings that uh, looked initially at the experience of Liverpool in the 1980s, that looked at the question: Is Labour dead? And then the third issue was the future of the left itself. A number of comrades from current, so they're both inside the Labour Party and outside of it, took part in those discussions. Um, and um, I spoke for Labour Party Marxists that one of the, uh, the meetings is Labour dead. Now, what was quite interesting for me in those discussions was that comrades all recognize the nature of the Labour Party, at least they, they claim to do that. And they all began with what for Marxists has been, you know, a long established argument that Labour is a bourgeois workers party. And, you know, as I said in my contribution, this is not just a sort of swear word, you know, to call the Labour leaders bourgeois. It's actually a scientific description that the leaders of the Labour Party have always been members of the ruling class or very closely connected to the ruling class from its origins. There is, I think, in certain sections of the Labour left, a lot of golden ageism. Um, you know, the, there's always an appeal to an historic past when Labour was a working class party. That's taken at various times but it's usually a rep reference to the 1945 Labour government, or it's a reference to um, the, uh, the, the foundation of the party in 1900. But the argument of, of those comrades is that Labour was once a socialist party, and it's now been um, sort of taken over by the right and by the pro-capitalists. But I think the Marxist argument is that, that unlike uh, other social democratic parties, Labour was not founded as a revolutionary organization. It was not founded as a specifically socialist organization, but as a representative um, uh, party for the organized working class. So it does have those links and that's what gives it the, the role of um, uh, a workers party in that sense. But also the paradox is that, that, is that the trade unions and indeed other elected representatives, their function has historically been to mediate between the working class 
and the ruling class. And indeed, objectively, and indeed more than objectively, what, what has often happened is that those leaders have been drawn into uh, the ruling class. And in the case of Keir Starmer, he, even before entering parliament, was an important part of the state legal apparatus. Much more, I think, a member of the, the state and the capitalist state than, than previous Labour leaders, much more so even, I would suggest, than Boris Johnson uh, in that sense. So the contradiction of Labour is that it is both the party that is supported by the working class through the, uh, through the trade unions, has links to the organised working class and therefore is a workers' party, but it's also a, a bourgeois party as well. And that throws up, I suppose, issues for, for us as socialists, how we orientate towards it. Now, in the discussions, many, many comrades said that Labour as a bourgeois workers' party was now dead. Comrades from the Socialist Party and also um, uh, comrades who support the, the new shadow uh, CLPs, uh, the, the Socialist Labour Party uh, in, um, in Newham, were arguing that Labour was now dead and that we had to build some sort of new organisation, some sort of new current. There was a very similar set of arguments at a, a earlier meetings um, organised by Chris Williamson's Resist Group, in which they announced at their meeting that they decided to join the Socialist Labour Party. And again, the argument was that a new organisation uh, was necessary. Now, I want to, you know, to sort of perhaps develop that because I think this is an important point for our wider discussions. In, in these discussions on Beyond the Fringe and in Resist as well, to a certain extent, a great deal of emphasis was placed upon the, the growth of working class militancy around the strike movement. And in particular, by historical references to things like the poll tax movement, and indeed a whole series of working class struggles. And it was suggested that that these sorts of struggles could throw up new possibilities for the left to develop an alternative, a socialist alternative to the Labour Party. Um, now, that was also in some senses the message uh, in and around um, some of the rallies about the importance of new layers being drawn into struggle through, through the trade union movement through um, the, uh, the cost of living crisis, enough is enough and so on. This put a great deal of emphasis, I think, on spontaneity. It also put a great deal of emphasis on a rapid growth in support for the left, it was suggested as a result of these sorts of movements. And as I said, comrades referred to the way that groups like the poll tax uh, anti-poll tax campaign had led to the growth of, of these movements very, very quickly. Uh, Dave Nellis, for example, referred to the fact that um, that that the original meetings about the poll tax had, had been sometimes numbered 11 or 15 people, and that within a couple of years, something like 25 million people were involved in an on-payment campaign. So he suggested, also by reference to the Russian Revolution, that uh, 
that the Bolsheviks had gone from a small, tiny group and had expanded into a revolutionary cadre in a matter of weeks or months. So these were the ideas that were that were very clearly there. And the suggestion was that that amongst these comrades on the left was now to break with Labour. But I think the point that, that, that they were making, and this is where I feel it should be central to our discussions, is that they might well be breaking with Labour, but they were not breaking with Labourism. And in particular, they were not breaking with the model of the Labour Party. Many of them were still talking about a party that would encompass the trade unions and a whole range of working class interests. Above all, when I say that they didn't break with Labourism, they weren't breaking, I think, with the fundamental idea of, of how socialism could be achieved through the development of a particular party and a particular programme. And in particular, the importance of a Marxist programme committed to revolutionary transformation. They still thought in terms of trade union struggles, of immediate struggles, and that uh, through a transitional model of politics, that would be the way to develop consciousness, to lead uh, in that way. This meant that the model, often the organizational model of, of these new formations was very similar to the old Labour Party. It also worked in the assumption that you did not, for example, need to develop a hegemonic party, a hegemonic Marxist party, but you just simply needed to build on these, this existing consciousness and these existing organizations. So uh, in, in, um, in several of the discussions, this sort of spontaneity, this sort of movementism was really quite strong. And I think this is the other sort of side two aspects of the conference that as well as the, the failure to recognize the weakness of the left, there was also an overstatement on the potential of spon spontaneous protests and industrial movements to throw up uh, a revolutionary consciousness, indeed to throw up any form of sort of formal politics. And uh, this type of syndicalism, as it were, was very was very sort of clearly aligned to laborism, and you you got the two sort of currents, um, you know, sitting um, sitting side by side uh, with each other in that way. Um, it was also, I think, quite noticeable that the um, that the comrades who are advancing these ideas for new initiatives on the left um, had often, you know, and they'd been trying these new initiatives for several years, comrades from the trade union and socialist uh, coalition, you know, were, were sort of pushing these arguments and could not give any real account of their, their failure, could not give any real account of why Starmer had been so successful, other than to simply talk about the, um, you know, the administrative measures and the purges and so on and so forth. But as I've said, that was quite a that was quite a clear theme running through this conference, um, a, a failure really to do any sort of stop taking and a settlement of historical accounts in what had happened before. Um, you know, to use a sporting analogy, uh, you know, it, it was it was really um, just saying that your opponents were too good without looking at what your weaknesses were. Um, you know, your own defensive lapses, your own lack of tactical nous, 
um, you know, the fact that the your goalkeeper was having a fag while two of the goals went in, that sort of thing, I think was very noticeable. Nobody really wanted to look back, except that when they did look back, it was in a sort of, you know, good old days, Jeremy had done well, or uh, Labour councillors in Liverpool had done this. So it, there was not a critical engagement. It, there was celebration when there should have been a lot more analysis and a lot more thought. Um, but again, that was, I think, marked the comrades' politics because they really see the future, I think, as just a repetition of that, uh, of, of that sort of past. Um, the other element I want to sort of draw uh, attention to um, is, I suppose, on the future of the left. And again, in comparison with any party conference I've been at in the last seven years or so, clearly the left had you know, suffered this demoralization, they'd suffered these defeats. But they, they were also, I think, uh, they now also are at really a very clear crossroads. Um, the various initiatives, I think, are likely to run out of some steam. Um, I think the, the crisis that we're facing, uh, you know, the cost of living crisis, uh, in particular, the war in Ukraine, all will tend, I think, to encourage people to rally round uh, Labour. So in the wider population, I think, you will get a lot of sort of pro-laborism. Um, the the old slogan that any uh, any Labour government is better than a Tory government will encourage people to uh, to rally round. This is probably about the worst time to launch any new initiatives, and indeed, as far as I can see, much of the the official Labour left is pretty well securely on board. Um, a number of comrades I know uh, before the conference in the last few months had thought that the um, Enough is Enough initiative might be the basis of some sort of new mass movement. And although it's it's got signed up on its database, a la John Landsman, something like 700,000 people, it's very clear that that movement is being safely corralled and contained within Labourism and that um, it's developing almost as a non-political movement. Indeed, in many of the, the cities that I have direct um, experience of it, it's very clearly being run by uh, parts of the official left. And indeed, that sort of soft left momentum current that cooperates with the right wing. So it's not, I think, a vehicle. I mean, it may mobilize people, it may bring people onto demonstrations and protests, but it's certainly not a, a, a vehicle for any sort of new party. Anybody that thinks it's a sort of a forerunner of the Chartists, I think is very sadly mistaken. I certainly don't see Andy Burnham in the role of Fergus O'Connor. Um, it's probably closer to William Lovett, but probably not quite as left-wing as that even. So uh, enough is enough will I think bring out demonstrations and you know there will be protests and demonstrations, the don't pay campaign, Likewise, will have that character. Um, but I think the main focus will be very much on, uh, you know, now trying to get Starmer elected. 
I noticed that um, in a number of the fringe meetings that even um, even left MPs, you know, protested their loyalty to Starmer, and they said that they they wanted Starmer to be to be elected. Even a number of the militant trade union leaders were were focusing on that. The other, uh, I mean, the other issue I think is that the 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 official left, as as it's demonstrated over the last couple of years, socialist campaign group, is really deeply embedded in the Labour Party. It is the left bureaucracy. It is, you know, even individuals who might be, uh, you know, to the left and might on occasions be critical, have silenced themselves. Um, you know the the way that people fell into line around the um, the obsequious uh, obituaries to Queen Elizabeth, and the way that they've remained silent on the witch hunt is a demonstration of that. What I think we're we're perhaps looking at though is that other left, and that other left still exists in the Labour Party, and that's the left in the constituencies in amongst the union activists. That left is the uh, 30,000 people or so who voted for, for Naomi Wimborne Idrissi. And it also is to a certain extent a left which was represented in parts of the fringe in Liverpool that's still looking for some sort of left-wing lead in that way. But what it's not being given is really very much uh, to work on. And in the fringe and in the debates, it was really being offered more of the same. Uh, I think the um, I think the thing for comrades of a certain age is that it can be quite uh, you know can be quite dispiriting to go and hear arguments that were made thirty and forty years ago, and you know to hear comrades making predictions uh, about the growth of the left and how that will occur. And, um, you know, the idea that this strike wave will spontaneously throw up a new left wing party, which is the common sense now of many people. Um, you know, we, we've been through these waves of working class militancy before. Um, but what we need definitely is, a, you know, is a, is a Marxist party in that particular program and particularly the attitude of building a working class revolutionary socialist consciousness of you know, really posing questions of power and the nature of society in that way. The other, the other issue I think is, uh, and this is where I think Labour Party Marxists do have a distinct position and one which, uh, you know, I think is, is central to uh, what's going to happen in the future, is that Labour cannot be ignored. Labour is, um, is a bourgeois workers' party has that contradictory pattern. It still retains considerable support amongst the working class, particularly the organized working class. So how do we orient towards it if we don't, uh, if we want to break people from that type of laborism, if we want to, to break them from reformism and concessions with capitalism? Well, the argument of Labour Party Marxists has been not, you know, labor through thick and thin, it's actually arguing, uh, like some comrades do, that it's only a Marxist party uh, with a, a Marxist program that can you know, carry out that revolutionary task. But that will have to orientate towards the Labour Party. 
And that's why our demand isn't for simple loyalty to the Labour Party, but the idea of its re-foundation as a united front of all socialist and working class organisations. And again, that sort of perspective, I think, will get a hearing, partly because it recognises the reality of the Labour Party as it exists, and it recognises that the Labour left can grow again, that there is already still within it, despite the purges, more people who are on the left inside than outside. <coughs> but it also recognises that Labour, as it's currently constituted, is not uh, an organisation that is capable of being transformed into a revolutionary organisation. That requires a particular programme and a particular perspective. And all the time that we have the argument that uh, that Labour governments and a series of Labour governments are the way to develop socialist politics, then we will remain trapped in that type of electoralism. So there is a dialectic between developing the forces of Marxism and orienting towards the Labour Party. And that, that point about the reforging of Labour as a united front but also that idea of building a Marxist party with a revolutionary programme of the self-emancipation of the working class, that's also a central issue. So the two things go hand in hand. We can't, I think, separate them. And that's certainly what comrades from the Labour Party Marxists were arguing uh, around the fringe. So to sum up, comrades, uh, in some ways, a fairly uh, depressing conference for the left. Um, you know, it was summarised, as I said, by uh, Keir Starmer's speech, which, um, you know, it, the whole stage managed nature of the conference. Also depressing for the way that the left both remained absolutely silent on those questions, was not in a position to make even symbolic protests and you know, was sufficiently demoralised and cowed to do that. But even when uh, comrades were at rallies and at protests and so forth on the fringe, all that we were getting was really a sort of set of tribute acts. Um, if Keir Starmer was doing a sort of Tony, um, a Tony Blair tribute act, then what we got on the fringe was very much a sort of, you know, Jeremy Corbyn tribute act. And in a way, both looking back to Blair and looking back to Corbynism represents no future. It, looking back to, to Blair, although superficially attractive for Starmer and the pro-capitalist wing, is, is really, you know, uh, is an illusion. Uh, it's quite likely that there will be a Labour government, but it won't be a Labour government on the basis of a of boom and economic growth, as in the 1990s. Um, no amount of singing, you know, things can only get better, is going to whistle up those new circumstances. And that definitely that the, any Labour government will have to carry out the attacks on the working class, albeit in a milder, more uh, emollient form, should, if a thing should be possible. Um, so in that way, the, the Blair tribute band, it's, it's, its revival won't last very long. But also, on the other hand, um, just constantly wanting to do chants of, Je oh, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, it has a sort of almost a religious mantra character of it. What the left now really needs to do is some good solid thinking about 
what went wrong, but also to challenge some of its basic assumptions. And that's where I think groups like Labour Party Marxists can can take can you know play a key role in that debate. Also, I think we need to step up our fight against the witch hunt. Um, possibly, a, you know, a time to revive labour against the witch hunt. Um, you know, the the, the absolutely uh, criminal attacks on uh, Naomi, an elected member of the NEC. You know, those are just the tip of the iceberg. So, rather than just simply shrugging our shoulders and saying, "Well, this is the way things are." I think we've got to go back on the counterattack because in counterattacking the right, we're not only showing up the nature of the Labour Party, we're showing up the nature of their project. And that, of course, is quite an important battle for Marxists uh, and for the working class in mo movement in Britain generally. So, uh, you know, in many ways, um, not the most inspiring of conferences, but it does point out for us the sort of work and the sort of uh, activity that we should be engaging in in the coming year. So thank you, comrades.